So my assignment uh, this afternoon is uh, to talk a little bit about uh, just some preaching issues uh, related to Daniel. Um, Dr. Lasseter kind of threw me off this morning when he, um, he left like 10 minutes on the table. Uh, he finished a little bit early. Um, I've never done that. I don't know what that looks like. Um, so I'm just going to add his 10 minutes to my session, all right? So I, um, I should have learned my lesson a long time ago about preaching and teaching too long. I planted a church in um, Dallas-Fort Worth um, Metroplex when I was uh, a master's student at Southwestern Seminary. Ended up pastoring it for eight years. It was my first church to pastor i never planted a church, obviously, never read a book on church planning or attended a conference, uh, you know, just kind of stumbled into it, but it was a, a great experience, and, um, you know, we met in a school building for a couple of years, and then uh, we built a building, bought some property, built a building, um, but then uh, we, you know, it was kind of one of those, uh, you know, model plans for church planning back in the, you know, in the 80s. And it was in a, you know, one of the rap, most rapidly growing areas of the nation. And sometimes those things don't fit. So we filled this building up in about six months. Uh, but it was an exciting time. Uh, you know, we were running two services. That's not that impressive because, like I said, it wasn't that big of a building. But uh, uh, a lot of electricity. Uh, there were people coming to know Christ. And, um, uh, you know, we, we just... When we gathered together, it was just a, it was it was one of those good seasons in the life of a church, and um, I remember, you know, one of the things that that we did was we like all of you do we as a new church didn't have staff. Uh, we were trying to find you know people with spiritual gifts, get them plugged in, and you know really just empowering folks to to do the work of the ministry. I remember one Sunday I was preaching. And um, uh, we had gone through a great time of musical worship and uh, a lot of electricity. And I got up to preach and preach my heart out. And, and I got to the end of the, um, uh, end of the message and I started to you know, extend an altar call invitation. Every week in the previous weeks, we'd have been people that had been walking the aisles, making decisions, people that were coming to know Christ, people wanting to join the church. But that particular Sunday, I start, you know, I start inviting people to come. I ask people to bow their heads. Music was playing, and I'm I'm appealing to people, you know, to to respond, give public expression to their spiritual decision. And for the first time in in several weeks, uh, nobody came, uh, and I was a little taken back by that. You know, I just uh, continued to you know to extend the invitation. I looked up at one point, and we had two aisles, and down this aisle over here, a cricket came hopping down the aisle. I, I'm, I'm not lying. It, you know, I, I watched it, and we had old traditional church building. You know, it was, there was two little rooms, you know, on, on either side of the platform. And uh, I, I got to the end of the invitation time, the altar call time, and I, I told the folks, I said, just, you know, wait uh, for, for a second. Uh, and I went down, and I picked the, the cricket up, and I said, now, you know, uh, things are really happening in a church when crickets start walking the aisle during the invitation. <laughs> and I sat down, and, and you know, one of the, the guys that we had empowered to do, you know, have a spiritual, he had an interesting spiritual gift. His name was Terry. He's a postal worker. Terry had the spiritual gift of announcements. Uh, and, and those of you that are pastors, you know what I'm talking about when I say, 
you know, we can't figure out what to do with announcements. You know, do you do them at the beginning? You know, nobody's there. Do you do them at the end? Everybody's ready to go home. Do you divide the service up? You know, do you put them on a video? What do you do? Well, Terry had this incredible sense of humor, and we discovered that he could make announcements get up and walk. And so we put him after the sermon every week. People would sit through my preaching just to hear him give the announcement. It's always entertaining. So Terry got up, he did the announcements, and then we, we dismissed service, went home. Next week, same song, second verse. Place was packed, electricity in the air, great musical worship. And I get to the, to, you know, after I, I preach, I, I get to the, the public invitation time, and I ask the people to bow their head, music playing, and I begin to appeal for the set first, the second time in two weeks, nobody came. And I looked up, and down the same aisle, I kid you not, a frog came hopping down the aisle. And I watched it. I was so excited. You know, I, I watched it. The, the door was open in this little classroom, and that frog hopped into that room. And so we got to the end, you know, end of the invitation. I said, folks, hang on a second. You've got to see this. And I went and I, I got that frog out and I brought it back. And I said, now, if you were here last week, you remember, I just shared with you, you know things are really happening in a church when crickets start walking down the aisle. I said, I want you to see this. This is a frog. I said, you know things. I don't know all that this means, but you know things are happening in a church when frogs start walking down the aisle. And, you know, people kind of, you know, laughed under their breath. And there was a sixth-grade boy uh, sitting on the I handed him the frog, asking him to put it. I sat down, and Terry Baker got up. He always sang in the choir. Every eye was on him because they knew he wouldn't be able to resist. And Terry came to the, the pulpit, and he looked down at me, and he said, he said, Pastor, I, I don't know all that that... That, that, that cricket coming last week or that frog coming this week means either. But he said, I was just noticing on my watch, it's 12.15. He said, it could be God's way of saying, let my people go. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I don't know why I feel compelled to say this, but I'm going to say it. That's a true story. I, you know, why do preachers say that? It's like, you know, is there other parts of what we say that's not true? You know, it's like... <laughs> I still don't know where that frog came from, but anyway, try not to hold you in bondage too long this afternoon, all right? So, we don't want to do with the Exodus narrative what Terry Baker did in poking fun at his pastor, and that's one of the biggest issues, you know, that we deal with when we come to a book like Daniel, Um, We talked about exegetical issues this morning. I was sitting back there as I was listening to Dr. Lasseter, and I was thinking, you know, how much of an overlap there is between the exegetical stuff, the Bible study stuff we do, and then the the preaching and teaching stuff we do. And uh, that is especially uh, true when you come to a place like Daniel. I mean, Dr. Lasseter was talking, you could hear him bleeding over into you know, how we interpret this for our people, and that leads then to how we apply this to our people and what we, you know, what we tell them to do. And so understand the the unity between these things. These Bible Expo students know that here at Southeastern, we we believe that we need to teach uh, Bible study and Bible interpretation as part of Bible exposition. Uh, and how we expose that to our people. Because you can't get up and say, thus saith the Lord, if you don't know what the Lord saith. And so we have to learn how to make sure we treat the text of the Scripture with integrity when we're interpreting it. 
But then we bridge over into making sure we bring that integrity into not only the way we communicate it to people, but how we apply it uh, to their lives. And you see these, these, uh, you know, these threads, unbroken threads that run from how we interpret the text of Scripture to how we actually preach and teach uh, the text of Scripture. So some of the issues are the same, and you'll hear some overlap in some of the things that I, uh, I talk to you about. Now, I, as I wrestle with this, I'm thinking, you know, one-hour session, just like with the, Herman, you know, the in, interpretive issues, uh, there's no way, you know, we can exhaust all that, you know, and that's our desire in this is just to whet your appetite, uh, maybe to steer you on a track of thinking about some things, affirming some things in many of your uh, you know, your live things that you're already doing, and then you go home and you, you hash this out, you hammer it out. When I was thinking about the, the preaching and teaching part uh, of this, um, you know, I was thinking, well, what the, one of the ways to approach this would be to come in and just give you a bunch of examples. Uh, okay, here's, here's some possible sermon outlines. Here's some possible series outlines. Um, uh, and and I, I'm going to do that by way of pointing you to some particular places. One of them you have in your hand. Uh, that's part of what the Christ-Centered Exposition series is about. It is about uh, you know, hearing from individuals that are studying a passage of Scripture, a book of the Bible, and, and communicating it pastorally. And so you're going to hear this from Dr. Aiken. You're hearing an example you know, from him, but all the way through this... You know, you've got, you've got one man's stab at some really good sermon outlines, some really good uh, uh, ways to break up, uh, the, you know, the, the book of Daniel in a series. If you look in, in the little uh, uh, kind of conference folder that you were given, uh, I have uh, pointed you in the back on some recommended resources to some individuals that I know that have preached through Daniel or preached through parts of Daniel, large segments of Daniel. Uh, these are some guys I would point you to. There's a host of others. There's probably a lot of good series and sermon outlines represented in this room today, but here are some uh, that I would call your attention to and the places that you can locate them uh, on the internet. Dr. Aiken, of course, and you can hear recordings of his messages through Daniel on his website, Alistair Begg, uh, W.A. Criswell, great longtime pastor, now uh, gone on to be with the Lord, but pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, uh, Tim Keller, um, John MacArthur, believe it or not, who spent his life preaching through the New Testament. Uh, Daniel is one of the few Old Testament books that he has preached a sermon series uh, through. John Piper, uh, you know, at least from what I was able to tell, hasn't preached through the book exhaustively or every text, but has some selected text. And then Dr. Jerry Vines uh, has preached through uh, the book of Daniel as well. I would point you, you know, to some of these guys to get uh, both outline ideas. Uh, I don't think we ought to ever preach somebody else's sermon, but uh, certainly we can learn from how others have divided up a passage, how they've divided up a series and organized the book. There's a lot of information out there, uh, and you'll, you know, you'll be exploring stuff like that the rest of your ministry. Obviously, you can already tell I've chosen not to make that uh, the, the heartbeat of this session on preaching. What I've chosen instead to do is for us to think about 
uh, from a somewhat of a 30,000-foot view, some do's and don'ts uh, regarding uh, preaching through the book of Daniel. And again, in some of these you know, things that we talk about, you'll see the overlap with the hermeneutical issues, and I'll try to make some of those connections for you uh, as well. So let me just walk you through these. Uh, you know, 12, I think, uh, do's and don'ts, six do's, six don'ts uh, that we'll look at. Some of these pairs, these couplets are related together, uh, to, you know, to one another. Before I jump into that, let me just uh, call your attention to, uh, on those resources in the back, uh, you, you have some, not only individuals that have preached through this, but also some uh, some recommended commentaries and some recommended books on preaching from uh, both Old Testament but then specifically Daniel. And one I want to call your attention to, just ask you to preach, uh, put a star by it, is the second one on the list uh, on, under the preaching category. Uh, Sidney Gradanus has uh, started doing a number of books on Bible books that really are the outgrowth of his work on preaching from the Old Testament, uh, preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So he has this, uh, the book that was, uh, came out several years ago, Preaching Christ from Daniel, Foundations for Expository Sermons. Great resource. I'm going to reference him in some of the things that, that I say to you, but you know, if you've got some book money or some resources or somebody wants to give you a gift and you want to get something on this subject, uh, I think that is a really, really good one uh, to, to take a look at. And he deals with a lot of uh, the big picture issues more than we will certainly in this session, but uh, uh, very, very helpful stuff. So let me jump into this, some do's and don'ts. I'll start with a don't. They're listed for you under the, the corresponding uh, notes to this session in your, in your conference booklet there. Uh, first of all, and, and Jerry has already, already got us thinking on this track, don't try to predict when Jesus is coming back and when the world is going to end. All right? uh, now, that seems like a no-brainer, right? But you, you, know, you know if you keep your ear to the ground and your eyes open and you listen well enough, uh, you know that there are a lot of folks, even in our own camp, that have attempted to do this. And when you come to a book like Daniel, you come to a book that, that in, to some degree, tempts you to do that. Because we're dealing with some eschatological stuff. We're dealing with some stuff, you know, obviously that is prophetic. This is a prophetic book and one that is looking, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot to the future and, and what is going to happen. So there's this temptation. It's just laying there, uh, you know, tempting you to, to want to, to go further than this book will let you go. And I think that's the thing that I... I I don't know if it's a real temptation for anybody sitting in this room to really want to put a date on it, but there have been others that surprised me, you know, in, in that area. You go back historically, uh, 1840s, a guy named Williams Miller, uh, he looked at the 2300 days in Daniel 8 designated them, interpreted them as being 2,300 years and concluded uh, that Christ would return sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Now, there's a lot since then that have tried to be more specific than that. And let me just remind you, the kingdom always takes a hit when it doesn't happen. The gospel always takes a hit 
It's just like a man defaulting on his ministry. When a man defaults on his ministry, people are going to remember his name for a little bit, but sooner or later they're going to forget about him. What they don't forget about is what his ministry reflects on, and that's his doctrine. And I think the same thing is true. When we try to go beyond where Scripture allows us to go, especially in light of something as obvious as Jesus saying, no man knows the date of the hour. And so when you come to the book of Daniel, you know, we find ourselves as preachers and teachers. We, you know, we're in positions of authority. I'm not talking about abused authority. We can't abuse it, but authority just from the standpoint that we are speaking for God when we preach and teach. People are listening to us. If you're not careful, you, you can let that go to your head and, 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 and move you into a place where you, you want to start trying to give people more than you're able to give them. And the truth of the matter is a lot of them want you to give them that. A lot of the people that come to hear you preach and teach... They want you to, man, they want you to zero in on this deal. They may not think you can pick the exact day and hour because Jesus said not to, but they want you to get close. And so I want to encourage you, you know, to be careful about that in the 1970s, maybe even a little closer to home. I don't know how Lindsay in the late great planet Earth used Daniel's vision uh, to support his argument for the end of the world, not just how it was going to happen, but, but uh, you know, general time period of when it was going to happen. Uh, a number of years ago in California, a radio host named Harold Camping uh, bought billboards and uh, plastered all over those billboards, saved the date. Maybe he was the first one to do that. You know, couples do that now with their engagements and weddings, send out save the date. This guy brought, bought billboards, and on it said, save the date, return of Christ, May 21st, 2011. This is not an unheard of thing. Uh, and, and so uh, be careful that as you come into this, you begin to deal with eschatological issues that you don't try to do what Jesus very explicitly told us not to do and that we would not be able to do. Uh, and that is predict uh, when he was coming back and when the world was going to end. Now, number two really grows out of that. Coming back on the other side, don't try to predict it, but... But do preach Jesus and, listen to me, the fact that he's coming back. I think that, I think we can rightly do that from a Christocentric view of the book of Daniel. One of the things that, that we are on very safe ground in is, is announcing to people and proclaiming to people that you know, this, this Messiah is coming back one day, and he's going to come back in a profound way, uh, a pro profound way that merits our consideration, not then, but right now. And so do preach Christ from Daniel and, and preach his return from Daniel. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Aiken to say a little bit more about the heartbeat of this commentary series uh, in our Q&A time uh, but but you know, suffice it to say, by virtue of, of uh, the, the title of the series, Christ-Centered Exposition, uh, this, this series is born out of a conviction that all of Scripture is about Jesus. Uh, we don't make that up on our own. Uh, Jesus said as much, uh, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets. Daniel's a prophet. 
Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he told those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he expounded to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A little bit later in the same chapter in Luke 24, all of the 11, the 11 remaining apostles were gathered together and, and it, it says that he, he, he preached from them or taught them from uh, Moses and the prophets and the book of Psalms. He throws in there at that point uh, about you know, how he was the fulfillment of all of those things. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders when he told them, you search the scriptures daily, John chapter 5, I believe, um, because in them you think you have eternal life. And then he said, and these are they which speak of me. You know, we are on very safe ground coming to the book of Daniel, knowing that we can preach Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we get to Christ the same way every time. It doesn't mean that we make uh, interpretive leaps and do interpretive gymnastics. That doesn't mean that you know, whenever in the Old Testament, of course, uh, you, you run across wood, that that represents the cross. Or you run across the letter red, that that represents the blood. And because there is so much um, uh, uh, apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel, it's easy to do that as preachers. It's easy to, to make those connections. So when we say preach Christ, we mean preach Christ with integrity. And some of those resources, by the way, in the back there are, are more general resources, not just in the book of Daniel, but, you know, are some resources that help us think through how to do that. Every passage of Scripture in the book of Daniel, if I could use Dr. Morita's, uh, 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 you know, put it, put it in his terms, every, every, every passage in the book of Daniel stands somewhere in relation to Christ. Uh, it, it either is going to be something that points to Christ or it's going to be something that explicitly speaks of the Messiah to, to, that, that it was to come, which there are some of those passages in Daniel, I believe, or it reflects back on Christ. And that wouldn't be the case in the book of Daniel, but certainly is the case for many books in the New Testament. Our responsibility is to determine where every passage of Scripture stands in relation to the person of Christ and then proclaim that uh, well with our people. This is not a conference on you know, all the principles for doing that. You know, be for another day. There's resources out there. But the thing I want you to hear me say right here is go into your study of the book of Daniel, go into your series on the book of Daniel, knowing you are on solid ground of uh, being able to show people where each of these passages, uh, you know, each of these narratives, each vision, where it stands in relation to Christ. And every passage doesn't stand in relation to Christ the exact same way. That's been part of the problem in exposition. It's one of the things that gives it a bad name sometimes. We go and we try to make everything uh, some representation of the person of Christ or the cross. You can't do that, but it doesn't mean that you can't proclaim Christ by showing where every passage stands in relation uh, to Christ. Number three, this is where we really get into where some of the big, biggest breakdowns you know, have been. Don't preach the stories uh, in the book of Daniel as a, as a series of moral lessons. Okay? Now, a lot of these principles are the same for a whole lot of other places uh, in the Old Testament, certainly some in the New as well. This is a common uh, misunderstanding, I think, in preaching in general, 
Uh, and it all goes back to the fact that we don't ever think through why we were given the Bible. Uh, this is one of the things that I try to emphasize to preachers and teachers. You know, we talk a lot about the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture and, and even the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And all of those things are important things for us to talk about. But it's interesting in all those discussions, we don't think much about the purpose of, the, of Scripture. And I would, I would submit to you that what you think about the purpose of this book, the reason it was given, will inform the way you preach it and teach it as much or more than anything else. Let me just give you a couple of examples. If you think this book is only to get people converted, so the front end of salvation, for them to get saved, as we say, have their sins forgiven. If you think that's the purpose of this book and why it was given, then what are all your sermons going to look like? Well, they're all going to look like some version of the Roman road or the four spiritual laws or the three circles. And every week when you get up before your people, you're going to just be preaching an evangelistic message. Uh, and that goes back to thinking. This is why, by the way, there's so many people sitting in your churches that don't think what you're saying is for them. Because they think, well, I got that. I, I, you know, I, I got saved, and so, you know, that, that, that's, I, I really don't need this. I, the second church I went to, I was, you know, preaching through Matthew's gospel. I've been there several months before I really preached, a, a, you know, a pretty hot message on hell out of the end of the servant, uh, Sermon on the Mount. The next day, I was mowing my grass, and one of my deacons pulled up out, in, you know, in front of the yard. I stopped. I went over to the, you know, the truck. He rolled down the window, and, and this is what he said. He said, well, preacher... You finally started preaching yesterday. Two months I had been there. Lots of pastoral messages to the church. But in his mind, I wasn't preaching unless I was telling the lost people they were going to hell. A lot of that stems from a misunderstanding of the purpose of this book. If you think the purpose of this book is to be an answer book, you ever heard anybody say that? The Bible answers every question people are asking. It's an answer book. Then what are your messages going to look like? Well, you're going to pose some question. People are asking, and then you're going to find a way to let the Bible answer it. Well, the, the only problem with that is what do you do when you run across, you know, questions people are asking that the Bible doesn't answer? You know, how do you fix a car engine? People out there that want to know that. How do you bake a cake? And we laugh at that, right? We laugh because we think, well, that's ridiculous. But, but it's a question. I mean, either the Bible answers every question or it doesn't. Right? Well, you bring it a little bit closer to home. What about, you know, what about, um, um, you know, what about dinosaurs? That's an interesting theological question. I think there's some people out there that are curious about that. We got some pretty good scientific evidence that those critters existed. But you go into the Bible and you start looking for when and where, you just don't have a whole lot of information. And that's part of the whole evolution creation discussion out there. It's a legitimate thing. Either the Bible answers every question or it doesn't. And the fact of the matter is the Bible was never given to answer every question that people will come up with. Here's, here's probably the, the biggest one. If you think the Bible is a practical manual for daily living... And, and, and let me tell you, even if you don't think that, you've got a lot of people sitting in your church or your small group that do. It's a roadmap for life right here. So they, they go into it and they, you know, they, they look to see, okay, well, this, is, you know, this, is, this addresses every 
every issue that I'm going to deal with in life. Let me just tell you, and I've, I've, students know this, I've told them this story you know, before, I think. I, biggest issue that I struggle with as a young father, uh, a young parent, was trying to figure out how to raise kids consistently that didn't have the same personalities or the same temperaments. Any of you have kids that are not just alike? I, you know, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I had two boys, you know, two, two years apart. And, and, you know, and I went into it, you know, we're going to raise it, we're going to be consistent, discipline them the same. And all of a sudden I got these two boys, and I got one of them that you could beat till he was black and blue, metaphorically speaking, all right? <laughs> don't, don't call a 900 number on me or anything, you know? You could, look at, you could beat him till he was black and blue, and he'd look at you as if to say, is that all you got? And then I had this other kid that you could just look at sternly and he, was, he would melt. I mean, it was just two, two, you know, completely opposite. Two age group, two, as they grow, two different sets of friends, two different personalities. You gotta, and, and let me tell you something, I, I searched this book backwards and forwards on how you do that. And that's a pretty important issue. I think probably all of you got people sitting in your congregation coming in every week asking questions like that. Hey, man, I need help with parenting. Got these two kids here, and they're not—they're really different. And I you know, wasn't ready for that, and you know, and I mean that's a real issue. I searched this book backwards and forward to find, you know, how do you how do you parent a strong-willed child? How do you parent kids that have different? And could I just be honest with you and tell you it's not in here? Oh, there's some principles in here that certainly would help that, but there's not any passage of scripture that is going to walk me through. There's not any sets of passages of scripture going to walk me through how to do that. Did God just forget about me? Did he just not know what I was going to be dealing with? Or did he just not give the Bible for that particular purpose? See, I, I think it's important for us to understand going into any book of the Bible why we have this Bible. Now, once again, we could spend a whole session on that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think the bookends of the Bible tell us what it's about. It's about uh, being recreated into the image of Christ that we were originally created for. The Bible starts with the creation of heaven and earth and the creation of mankind. Is in, it ends with the recreation of heaven and earth and the recreation of mankind. And, is, and everything in between is about that. And by the way, that's not impractical. You know the best chance that those two boys of mine had for being raised consistently, disciplined, rightly, the best chance they had is for their dad to look more like Jesus. And we, we forget that sometimes. We want to come in and make this book say things it was never intended to say because we think, gosh, we got to give our people something practical and something real because this is where they are. And we completely bypass, we jump over this purpose of recreating them into the image of Christ which is foundational. Now, I'm, I'm glad for all the information on top of that, the extra biblical stuff. Thank God for James Dobson. Some of you remember him and you know his book on the strong-willed child. I was helped by that. But it, it wasn't that which was, okay, here's what God was saying in a passage of Scripture. Listen, when we come to the stories in Daniel, one of the biggest temptations we'll have is to take those stories and moralize them. And simply make them moral lessons. You know what I mean by moralizing? I'm talking about drawing one or more moral uh, uh, you know, principles from, you know, from the preaching text that, that really is contrary to what the biblical author 
and, and even the divine author was, was thinking about when he inspired that, that text of Scripture. I think this has been one of the main evangelical misunderstandings about the book of Daniel, and that is that we've just got some really cool Bible stories here, and, and, and the purpose of it is, is to give us these, these moral tales. And, and listen to me, as you begin to get into some good evangelical commentaries, some, some of you, you, you need to watch out for this. Nobody's perfect. That's why you need to look at multiple commentaries when you're studying, not just one, because even sometimes those guys miss. One prominent evangelical commentator asserts this. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, for example, is an example, a warning of how not to be led astray by power and achievement, a model how to respond to chastisement and humiliation. Another commentator takes Nebuchadnezzar's words in Daniel 4, verse 2, and he says this. He's talking about that phrase, it is my pleasure or it is my delight that Nebuchadnezzar says. And he, he, he says that that phrase shows that it was a true joy for the king to share what God had done in his life, delivered him from madness. This should be the attitude of any believer, the commentator says. If God has done something wonderful, an individual should be delighted to share that experience with others. Another commentator takes Nebuchadnezzar again, lifting his eyes to heaven in Daniel 4, verse 34, and he applies that to the need for pastors to help their people, quote, look away from themselves, their emotions and moods and their difficulties and their mental problems, and fix both eyes on the mercy of God alone, end quote. Now, <laughs> there's probably a chance that you'd hear some of those things and you think, well, it's a big deal. You know why? Because there's not anything that any of them were saying that was wrong or heretical. But we have to ask the question, is it likely that Daniel would, would want the exiles that he was writing to and write about identify and imitate the very person who brought them into captivity and destroyed God's city and temple. Is that, is that likely? That that's what the Spirit of God was doing in that? We, we have to be consistent with this. It's just like going into the book of Nehemiah and, and thinking that's a book about leadership. Can we learn some good things about leadership from the book of Nehemiah? That's great. But we got to ask the question, is this why God put this in here? Is this why we have? I'm always fascinated by the selectivity that people think, you know, in thinking that Nehemiah is about leadership, uh, you know, uh, apply when they come to it. I've never heard anybody use Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, for example, as a leadership principle. It says, and I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. All right, it's either a leadership book or it's not. All right? And so we go in. Do you see what I'm talking about? Easy. Our bent for practicality. Our bent for practicality will cause us to do. And, and, and by the way, some of you, some of you teach children. You, you've got to think about, you've got to help us think about this better than we have before because... A lot of times we start this approach to the Bible in the early years by simply moralizing stories. Be strong like Samson. Huh? Do your homework. Samson's not in the Bible because he's a great guy, you know, a picture of what it means to you know, love God and, and, and live morally. I mean, 
Samson's in one of a series of judges that weren't good enough. Always pointing to the fact that the people needed, they needed a better judge than what any of those guys were. But yet we go in and we moralize it for our children. And I know children have to think concretely, but we've, we've got to, in, in, in helping them think concretely, we've got to help them get beyond just starting off thinking that's what this book is. And we can't come to Daniel that way. You know the famous stories that are in, ba- in Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, you've got all the, the story in chapter 1, you know, of the, uh, them choosing not to eat the food. And all. He's got these great stories that it's easy just to, to moralize them and make them say something. What moralizing does is it kind of it, it kind of lets application get out of control just can spin the application in almost any direction and 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 once again the deceptive thing is is that that that, that the applications we make when we moralize it are usually not heresy and so we we forget what our responsibilities preachers and teachers are. we think that man what we're supposed to do is just give people good and helpful stuff pastors teachers that's not your job your job's not just to get up and start and talk about all things good and helpful. It's to say, here's what God said. That's what people need, what God said. And so that's what's so important about what, what Dr. Lasseter was talking about this morning is us learning how to make sure we go in there and find what God said. But then when we bring that into the preach and we begin to apply it and we begin to make connections, we, we can't just go off the rails. And, and I know a, a lot of guys that do this, they do good, good Bible study and interpretation and then they think the preaching event is something different or the teaching event and they just go hog wild with application. Haddon Robinson said a number of years ago that more heresy is preached in application than in biblical exegesis. So you can do your interpretation right, but then go off the rails in your application. Don't, don't, don't moralize don't, don't go outside of what the biblical author intends. Number four, do you remember those crickets and frogs I was talking about? I can already see them coming down the aisle right now. So yeah. Number four, do respect the big biblical genres. Here's one of the interesting things about Daniel. A lot of books we go into, at least we're operating from the, the standpoint that the whole book is one particular genre. And it's not always the case, but for a, bo- a lot of books it is. When you come to the book of Daniel, it's not the case. Uh, you're dealing with several different kinds of literary genre. You've got some historical narrative. You've got prophetic material. And then you've got apocalyptic material. Now, why am I telling you? This is one of those things that ties together with the interpreter's issue but now bleeds over into the the preaching and teaching issues. I think understanding genre, the most important place is to start in the interpretation because it tells us how to interpret uh, Scripture. And and we miss this a lot of time. We, We miss the fact that different biblical genres actually have different rules. I love Robert Stein's uh, analogy. He says this, Think for a moment of a European soccer fan attending his first American football and basketball game. In football, the offensive and defensive players can use their hands to push their opponents. In basketball and soccer, they can't. 
Basketball players cannot kick the ball, but they can hold it with their hands. In soccer, the reverse is true. In football, everyone can hold the ball with his hands, but only one person can kick it. In soccer, everyone can kick the ball, but only one person can hold it. Unless we understand the rules under which the game is played, what is taking place is bound to be confusing. And then he goes on to say, in a similar way, there are different game rules involved in the interpretation of the different kinds of biblical literature. And he's going to go on to say, is you've got to know what those rules are. If you're going to understand how truth is being communicated through that particular genre, then, then you've got to know when you're studying the text. All right, you say, well, Shaddix, you're supposed to be talking about preaching and, and teaching the text. How does that... Well... The genre, while it first tells you how to interpret the text, when we come into communicating it to other people, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to be one of the determinants of how you ought to preach that. And, and, and if I could just take one slice of that, tell you specifically, maybe sometimes how much uh, text you actually preach. I think one of the problems that we have run across in exposition is so many of us, because we love to preach Paul's epistles, we've tried to preach, um, you know, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, and even coming a Book of Acts, uh, but even coming here to Daniel and some of the narrative stories there, we try to preach in the same way. So we divide them into paragraphs, and we take each of those paragraphs, we make them a sermon or one Bible lesson, and we try, to, we try to preach it the same way we would Paul's epistles. But here we're dealing with a, a, a genre that's operating by different rules. In general, historical narrative material is, is going to compel us probably to take longer text because truth is communicated through the whole story, not just you know, one, one segment of it. We've got to get you know, the whole picture. Whereas in Paul's epistles, that's not necessarily the case you got two different sets of rules. Now, throw in prophetic material, throw in apocalyptic material. Each of those has its difference. Don't go into every, every passage in Dan, Daniel, number one, and try to interpret it according to the same rules. But number two, then when you come to preach it. I'm going to comment on this hopefully here in just a little bit with regard to those visions in the latter part you know, of Daniel in 7 through 11. Uh, how sometimes we, we, we try to make more of the historical details there than we really have the, the ability to be able to, uh, to do when maybe we should be looking at something uh, a little bit bigger uh, than that. So respect the biblical genre. Number five, don't forget, I'm put five and six together. Uh, don't forget the biblical author's purpose. Uh, and I just put one slice of that, actually adopted this from Sidney Gradanus to encourage the Israelites in exile that God was sovereignly able to save the faithful, control world events, and ultimately establish his eternal uh, kingdom. Now, let's just assume that that is at least close to a big idea of the whole book. And you come then, if you look at number six, do, you know, don't, don't forget the biblical author's purpose, but do apply that purpose then rightly to the contemporary context. The people you're going to be preaching to are not the Israelites. They're not in exile, okay? Uh, the, 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 there, there are historical things that, that don't apply. 
But you look at that, that statement in number five and then consider a statement of application like this in number six. God's people, who you are talking to, can be comforted and encouraged with the truth that despite appearances to the contrary, he is still in control and ultimately will establish Christ's eternal kingdom. Now, some of you have studied preaching and teaching know that what I'm talking about here is, is finding the main idea finding the main idea of the text of Scripture, which is historical, and then translating that main idea into a main idea for your sermon. But those don't look exactly the same. You move from the historical to the contemporary, but when you do, you have to make sure you are bringing the timeless truths into the contemporary context and not all the historical details. You can see in that second statement there things that have been brought over. You know, uh, he is still in control related to his sovereignty, our trust in him. He could be trusted to be faithful uh, to do this. God is on the throne and he is controlling all of this. And so here's the deal. If that is the main idea of the book or what you determine, you know, and I don't say you just come up with your own. You come up because you studied the book. But when you land on that main idea, you've got to bring that main idea into every preaching passage that you deal with. Every teaching segment that you deal with. That you, you want to be able to show how does this passage fit this sovereign control of God. And that then becomes your, your, your point of application or points of application. Number 7 and 8 together. Don't get bogged down in the historical details of chapters 7 through 11. So I, I mentioned this a moment ago. This is kind of an example of what I, you know, what, what I was uh, you know, saying about sometimes we want to make more than we're really able to do. Uh, you know, number 8, do concentrate, on the other hand, on the major theme of each of Daniel's visions in chapter 7 through 11. So, you know, there are commentators that actually don't think that, you know, you can preach Daniel 11, for example, with all of the details that are there. Some of you know John Calvin devoted 100 pages and nine lectures to analyzing chapter 11 alone. There is a lot of stuff there. But when you look at it, Daniel chapter 11 is actually part of Daniel's final vision that runs all the way from chapter 10 verse 1 to chapter 12 verse 13. And, and since each of those visions has some powerful theme, then the thing that I want to encourage you to do, I think Gradanus would, you know, would say this as well, is concentrate on that theme instead of getting bogged down in all of the historical details. Now, you have a responsibility to show any historical details that are necessary for that understanding, that theme. But this is where there's a difference between our Bible study and our preaching and teaching. Everything you dig up in your Bible study doesn't need to find its way into your sermon. What needs to find its way in your sermon is the details of the text that are necessary to get people to that main idea. And, and, and I think Daniel you know, 7 through 11 is, is a, a place a lot of times we go into. And once again, we're trying to break it down like we would one of Paul's epistles. And, and we end up trying to make things that, you know, make it say stuff that it doesn't say. We also end up spending way more time trying to explain all of those details. And, and we, we cloud the issue with regard to, you know, people's understanding of the big picture uh, of, of, of the major theme of that 
that vision. So when you're studying those visions and you're preaching and teaching those visions, make sure that you stay focused. Don't just back the dump truck up from your Bible study and all those cool historical details you heard. Don't just back that up on Sunday morning, uh, you know, or whenever your group meets and, and unload it on your people. It's one of the things that has given exposition a bad name for some people is that's what some individuals think expository preaching and teaching is. It's just explaining every single detail in the text. And, and, and that is, is not the case. People get overwhelmed and they get, over, they get overloaded you know, with that. So Daniel 11, uh, uh, and Gradanus makes this comment. He says, I just mentioned the reason Daniel goes into so much historical detail. And, and that is God controls even the details of human history and then proceed to Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 through 4 which, you know, he says communicates the primary message. So it's a stewardship and every passage is not going to be exactly the same. But the point is don't get bogged down, uh, you know, in some of those, those details uh, and, and never get to the big picture and only communicate the details or spend time with the details that are necessary for getting your folks uh, to that place. Number nine, don't leave Jesus in the fiery furnace, the lion's den, or the grave. Now, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking specifically about the pre-incarnate, um, you know, uh, what, what is interpreted, and, and I, I think rightly so, as pre-incarnate manifestations of of the person of Christ, um, you know, to identify um, the, the angel uh, with the pre-incarnate Christ uh, it isn't wrong. That's, you know, what we have done most of the time with the one in the fiery furnace, in the, you know, in the lion's den, in Daniel 3 and 6. But sometimes that's as far as we go in preaching Christ from those passages of Scripture. Oh, this is a this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, and so we we preach Jesus. So here's the deal. And sometimes we don't think it. You and I are preaching on this side of the cross. We're not preaching on the side of the cross of any you know where, where there was any pre-incarnate manifestation. We, we are we are preaching on the post-incarnate side. So it doesn't, it's not wrong for us to see Christ in there, but if we are going to preach Christ, if we are going to preach the gospel from every text, we've got to make sure that we go further than that and we make the connection between the manifestation of Christ and, and the fact that he came and he was incarnate and he took the sins of the world and he died for them on a cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended back into heaven and seated at the right hand of God and he's coming again. Those are things that are related to the gospel, not just, hey, Jesus showed up, you know, before he ever came to earth. That's a starting place in preaching Christ from the book of Daniel, but it's not the ending place. Gradanus said this, I define preaching Christ as, quote, preaching sermons which authentically integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person, work, and or teaching of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. So that's great for us to help our people see how Jesus helped Daniel or helped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But remember, 
that's not what we're responsible for doing, at least as far as limiting to that. We want to show people how he helps them. And, and, and if we don't get him out of the fiery furnace and out of the lion's den and out of the grave, then we're going to do nothing more than moralize it. Jesus is there to help you in your tough times. He, you know, Jesus is there to, you know, to deliver you. And, and you see, if we think through that, we, we know. I'm preaching through Psalms right now, a lot of the imprecatory Psalms in, in, in Charlotte. And, and man, I, I'm preaching through some of the ones that, you know, we don't spend a lot of time with sometimes. You know, David's calling fire down from heaven and, you know, and uh, on his enemies and judgment and all of those kind of things. And he's asking for deliverance. And, and it's so easy in there to want to preach those and at least give the impression. And, you know, he's going he's gonna to deliver you from all of your enemies. He's going to deliver you from all of your pain. He's going to deliver you from all of your suffering. He's going to deliver you from all of your, your hurt in the world. But, but when we put our heads on our pillows at night and we know our theology, we know that that's not true. He doesn't always do it in the way that we think that he is. Is he deliverer? Yes. Is he faithful? Yes. Does he rescue? Yes. But you see, if I don't bring my whole theology into the lion's den and into, you know, the fiery furnace, then all I've got for people is some false hope that Jesus is going to, he's going to fix every difficult situation. But because I'm on this side of the cross and I have the larger body of revelation, I, I have the privilege and the responsibility of showing how Jesus always helps them always is applicable to their lives, always delivers, always rescues. And I got a responsibility to tell them too. Sometimes, sometimes he lets some of his children get burned in a fiery furnace or get eaten up by lions or lose their life on the mission field. Have people come against them that there's not immediate retribution, you know, for that sometimes that happens, but it doesn't cloud the issue of his sovereign hand and the fact that he is deliverer and rescue and ultimately all of that is going to be manifested. I got to get Jesus out of the lion's den. I got to get him out of the furnace. We start there, but we got to make sure that we show them the gospel and where that passage stands in relation to it. Number 10, uh, kind of provided this for you as a resource. Do preach the major biblical themes taken up in the book. Certainly different guys that you read, uh, you know, the, a list like this certainly would, would, be, would vary, I think, to some degree. But I think with regard to guys that have studied the book, you're going to find some general, uh, you know, similarities. I, I won't read through all of those. Those are there of yours point I want you here is, listen, these are kinds of things that you really want to major on. You want to make sure that you keep coming back to. These are themes that, that are, are, are biblical themes. In other words, they're not limited to the book of Daniel, but they run through Scripture. And, and I think we've got a responsibility to connect uh, to those themes when we're preaching uh, Daniel. Number 11, really, really important one. Don't major on second-order doctrines by attacking eschatological views different from yours. Don't major on second-order doctrines by attacking eschatological views that are different from yours. Now, let me tell you what that statement does not say. That statement does not say don't communicate your eschatological view. Doesn't, doesn't say, hey, 
you know, showing your people, look, this is why I believe, you know, this is his point to that. Um, I, I, I know where I am eschatologically, but we also know we live in a day, not just in evangelical circles, but in our own Southern Baptist camp, which most in the room probably ident- would identify with that, where, you know, it, it's, it's not like it used to be, uh, where everybody, you know, believed in a, a you know, a pre-tribulation rapture and a seven-year, you know, uh, period of, you know, of, of persecution that Christians are delivered from. And then Jesus is going to bring us back and, you know, and a thousand-year literal millennial rest. You know, you back me in the corner, put a gun to my head, I, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm still there, you know, I'm still there. But... Could I tell you that many of the specifics related to that, I, I think we don't have all the information we'd like to have on. That's why there's disagreement. You know, there's disagreement. The point I'm making here is, is notice the wording, don't major on second-order doctrines by attacking. The two words I want you to see is majoring and attacking. This is what you don't want to do, is, is you don't want to major on second-order doctrines that we know there's room for disagreement with in our evangel- evangelical circle. That, that's not what preaching the book of Daniel is about. And you certainly don't want to use your pulpit or your small group platform that you have for attacking and tearing down the second order beliefs of others that are different from yours. There is too much in this book related to those major themes up there and those big ideas. There is too much here that points to the person of Christ for us to spend our study doing those things. And you're not hearing me once again say, don't address as you gotta you gotta address eschatology if you're gonna preach Dan. And 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 again, I think it's important for us to say, here's what I believe and here's why I believe it. But let's don't teach our people to make second-order doctrines first-order doctrines. We've got too much of that happening in our circles today. It's splitting churches. It's causing guys to lose their pulpit. They're not losing their ministries over the virgin birth or even the second coming of Christ. They're losing their ministries because they're trying to make first-order doctrines out of second-order doctrines. And there's temptations, I think, anytime you're dealing with eschatology to do that. So be careful about that. And then finally, do major on preaching the hope we have in our sovereign God and preach it in the power of the Spirit. And this would be in contradistinction to majoring on second-order doctrines and attacking certain eschatological views. Now, listen, there's eschatological views out there that are heretical. I I get that. I think that becomes first-order stuff. Jesus is not coming back, you know. That's why Peter had to write his second epistle, to, to refute that. And we, and we need to refute that. You know that's not what I'm talking about. But just like trying to pin down the date and the time, when you try to make a major doctrine out of exactly what order and when those types of things are going to happen, exact, and go beyond what the Bible gives us, much less the book of Daniel, then that's when we begin majoring on the wrong things, when instead we can major on the hope that we have in a God that didn't wake up today and say, whew, I didn't see that coming. That is completely sovereign and he is completely in control and can be trusted uh, to uh, be faithful to uh, his people.